You see on the overhead that we're, we're studying First and Second Kings together because in the Hebrew Bible, First and Second Kings is really just one book. It's the book of Kings, but in our Bible, it's sort of Kings part one and Kings part two. And uh, as we're in Second uh, Kings chapter four, um, if you've been here in this study, you know what's happening is the, the camera lens as we've moved through Second Kings has been slowly zooming in on the ministry of the prophet Elisha. So... First Kings, the last third of First Kings focused on the prophet Elijah. And so we looked at Elijah and his miraculous ministry at the end of First Kings. Well, now that we've moved into Second Kings, the lens has left Elijah. Elisha, Elijah has been taken up into heaven. His ministry mantle has been passed to Elisha, and now we're seeing the miracles of Elisha. And just if you step back from that and think what, what we're seeing. Together, the ministry of Elijah, followed close in hand by the ministry of Elisha, is one of the most remarkable periods in, not just in Old Testament history, but in human history. Because the, the ministries of these two men are sort of a, a blip on the radar of history when it comes to miracles being done. There is a proliferation of miracles that are done during the days of Elijah and Elisha. I've mentioned this before. I don't know how you think about history or biblical history, but it's not that Bible history is just chock full of miracles, as if from Genesis 1 to Malachi, it's just one miracle after the next, and they're just getting swarmed with miracles. That's not the way the Bible storyline happens at all. There are, there are periods of miracles. Here's the way John MacArthur explained it. He said, most biblical miracles happened in three relatively brief periods of Bible history. In the days of Moses and Joshua, during the ministries of Elijah and Elisha, and in the time of Christ and the apostles. None of those periods lasted much more than a hundred years. Each of them saw a proliferation of miracles unheard of in other, area, in other eras. Even during those three time periods, however, miracles were not exactly the order of the day. The miracles that happened involved men who were extraordinary messengers from God. Moses and Joshua, Elijah and Elisha, Jesus and the apostles, Aside from those three intervals, the only supernatural events recorded in Scripture were isolated incidents. Okay, so I say that just to emphasize. So as we're studying these back-to-back -back ministries, we're looking at such a unique period of Bible history. It's, it's an exciting period to study. And as we're looking at the ministry of Elisha, again in chapter 4 tonight, from now all the way through chapter 6, it is going to be one miracle after the next. I mean, almost machine gun miracles. It started in chapter 2, it went through chapter 3, and now they're going to start coming faster and faster and clearer and clearer. And so we're going to be looking at lots and lots of miracles over the next, uh, over the next few weeks. And just a few things to keep in mind as you think of these miracles. One is you're going to notice that there is a clear continuity between the ministry of Elijah and the ministry of Elisha meaning that there's similarities between the miracles of the two. So, for instance, Elijah did a, a miracle where he cared for a widow woman, and that miracle caring for that woman involved oil. Well, we're going to see tonight, Elisha is going to do a miracle, helping a widow woman, and the miracle, again, is going to involve oil. Elijah raised a woman's son from the dead. Well, tonight we're going to see Elisha raise a woman's son from the dead. So there's a very clear continuity in these two men's ministries. Okay, but going the other way, not only is there a continuity, like you have Elisha looking back on Elijah, there's a similarity, 
But there's also a very clear similarity with Elisha looking forward to the ministry of Jesus. And what I mean is, as we go through some of Elisha's miracles over the next few weeks, you'll see that a lot of his miracles were almost like a preview of miracles that Jesus would do. So for instance, one of the, one of the miracles we'll look at tonight I just mentioned is where Elisha is going to raise a woman's son from the dead. And the place he does it, the city of Shunem, is actually almost the exact same location where Jesus raises a woman's son from the dead. Okay, so Elisha raises this woman's son in Shunem. Jesus, do you remember the story where he raises the son of the widow of Nain from the dead? Well, Nain and Shunem are almost the same place. They're on different sides of the same hill in Israel. So the people in Nain, when Jesus did that miracle, would have been extremely familiar with the story from the Bible of what had happened just over the hill from them in the city of Shunem. We'll see next week. There's going to be a miracle where Jesus takes, a, uh, excuse me, Elisha takes a small provision of food, and it's miraculously multiplied to feed a large group of people. And it's going to be this, this faint reminder of the miracle Jesus would do when Jesus takes a small amount of food and multiplies it to feed a huge crowd. So it's almost like with the, with the ministry of Elisha, God is saying, if you're impressed with this, you ain't seen nothing yet. That if you're impressed by what he's doing through this man, Elisha, wait until the word becomes flesh. So there's a continuity with Elijah, and there's also, we're also in his ministry getting a preview of what would come in the ministry of Jesus. Okay, so keep all of that in mind, and we're going to start reading through, we're going to look at two of the miracles tonight. There's four in this chapter, so we won't look at all the ones in chapter four, but just look at how 2 Kings 4 verse 1 begins. It says, a certain woman of the wives of the sons of the prophets cried out to Elisha saying, your servant, my husband is dead and you know that your servant feared the Lord and the creditor is coming to take my two sons to be his slaves. Now pause for a minute and make sure you get the tragedy of the scene that's being laid out. So we're introduced to this faithful woman whose husband, we're told, had been one of the sons of the prophets. So she had been married to one of the prophets. Now what was it like to be a prophet or one of these student prophets during this time? Do you remember? Let's just rewind back a few years when Jezebel and Ahab had been on the throne. What was, what was Jezebel's attitude toward the prophets of Israel? She wanted to eradicate them. She was doing everything in her power to slaughter all the prophets of Yahweh in the land of Israel. Well, this man would have certainly lived during that time. So he and his wife had been faithful to the Lord. He had been a servant of the Lord during very, very dark days and had a reputation. Notice what she says to Elijah, Elisha. You know that your servant feared the Lord. So what was this man's reputation? She trusted Elisha knows that this is a man who had a deep reverence for God. So this is a couple that knows the Lord. This is a couple that has served the Lord. This is a couple that has walked with the Lord during some very, very difficult days. And now what happens? He dies. And the, the, what, the picture we get in the story is he dies with two young sons. So he dies what seems to be an early, unexpected death. Okay, but wait a second. He and his wife were faithful to God. 
Can people who are faithful to God, I, I thought if you were faithful to God, that guaranteed you a long, healthy, trouble-free life. Is that what you get in the Bible? No. Can Christians die suddenly and unexpectedly from heart attacks? Can the children of Christians get parent, uh, can the children of Christian parents get cancer? They can. God did not promise us that if we would follow him, we would have a trouble-free life. Now, he promised that he would walk with us in the troubles, and you have that great promise in 2 Corinthians, one of, the, one of the best promises in the Bible when it comes to suffering. It's where Paul says that these light, momentary afflictions, that's how he describes any trouble we face in this life. He calls it light and momentary compared to the eternal weight of glory that God has waiting for us. Okay, that's important because if, if you buy into a lot of what you hear on TV, if you buy into the idea that if you follow Jesus, then life will follow according to your plan and it'll stick to your agenda, you will end up very, very disillusioned in the Christian life. So we have a faithful couple and the husband dies. And when he dies, it leaves his family in a very, very precarious position. The most vulnerable people in this world at this time were widows and orphans. Okay, if you're a widow, you need, your only hope is to have family that can step in and take care of you. Okay, there's no, there's no help in women getting jobs. That's not a big push in this day. Okay, so if, if you're alone as a woman, you are in trouble. Your best help, your best hope is that you have adult sons who could take you in when your husband died. But this woman doesn't have adult sons who can help her. She has young sons that she's still having to take care of. Now, God had provided a means for widows in Israel to be taken care of. If you read through the Old Testament, there's regular instruction to Israel about God's heart for those among them who were in need and vulnerable. So if there were widows who didn't have family, well, Israel as a whole, God's people together, were supposed to make sure that the needs of those widows were being met. And God gave warnings about what he would do if they took advantage of of widows or those in there. I'll just give you one example. Listen to Exodus 22. This is God speaking to Israel. He says, you shall not afflict any widow or fatherless child. If you afflict them in any way and they cry at all to me, I will surely hear their cry and my wrath will become hot and I will kill you with the sword. Your wives shall be widows and your children fatherless. That's a pretty strong warning, right? So what's the idea you get there of God's attitude toward those who are vulnerable among his people? Is that, God's, that God's heart is compassionate and that God expects his people to take care. In fact, you even get very practical instruction in the Old Testament about how they were to be taken care of. You remember what they were supposed to do when they would harvest their fields? That's right. They weren't supposed to harvest the corners. They, were, they weren't supposed to strip it bare when they went through their grapevines. They weren't supposed to take it all. They were supposed to intentionally leave some still hanging on the vine so that needy people like widows could come into the fields and come into the vineyards and that they could harvest and that their needs would be met. And that, that idea carries forward into the New Testament. I mean, you could say that, practically speaking, the main reason God puts deacons in the church in the book of Acts was to do what? Just to make sure that the widows in the church, that their needs were being met. We, I mentioned briefly this morning in 1 Timothy, where Paul gives instruction to Timothy about 
a widow list that they would have and what that would look like. And what you get is that, that widows who had family, it was the family's responsibility to look after. That the family had primary obligation before God to make sure that widows' needs were being met. But those who didn't have family, it then fell to God's people. The church was supposed to make sure that they were being ministered to. And I'm giving you that just to make the point that what we're reading in verse 1, it, it reminds us of what the spiritual condition of Israel was like at this time. Because here we have a woman who her and her family had been faithful to God. Her husband dies. She's alone. And guess what God's people aren't doing? They're not stepping in to help. So it's, it's another reminder of what a bleak spiritual climate it is. That these folk, this is a, a nation right now that has left God's commands and have drifted away from God's heart. And so this woman now is in debt up to her eyeballs. And there's no way to get out. And you can't just declare bankruptcy in this day. Right? If you had debts, guess what they expected you to do with your debts? Pay them. In fact, if you couldn't pay your debts, you, you were required to hand over your children, if you had children, and your children would become indentured servants. And your kids would have to work off your debt. They would be indentured servants until the entirety of your debt was paid for. So that's what this mom is facing. Her husband has just died, and now it looks like her kids are going to be taken away. So just try to imagine the angst in her heart. But what she does is she now turns and cries out to Elisha. Now remember, Elisha is God's representative at this time. So in crying out to Elisha, she is crying out, hoping that she can find help in God. Okay, that, that's the scene. Now let's see how he responds to her. Keep reading in your Bible. Verses 2 through 4. So Elisha said to her, What shall I do for you? Tell me, what do you have in the house? And she said, Your maidservant has nothing in the house but a jar of oil. And then he said, Go borrow vessels from everywhere, from all your neighbors, empty vessels, and do not gather just a few. And when you have come in, you shall shut the door behind you and your sons, and then pour it into all those vessels, and set aside the full ones. So she lays her need out to Elisha, and what does Elisha say? He, he asks her what he can do for her. Now, now, I just want you to think about what a contrast that is. Do you remember last week when we saw King Jehoram, and Jehoram was in need, the army of Israel was in the wilderness of Moab, they had run out of water, and so Jehoram went to see Elisha to ask God for help, and do you remember how, how Elisha responded to King Jehoram? He said, what do you and I have to do with each other? In other words, what business do we have together? Because Jehoram had lived a godless, faithless life where he had no interest in God at all, and all of a sudden he's expecting God's help when he's in trouble, and Elisha had no interest in helping Jehoram. Do you see how different Elisha's response is now? This widow lays out her burden, and Elisha says to her, what shall I do for you? It's like there is an eager willingness now to help this woman. She has been faithful to God. She served the Lord. It, it, think of how Jesus painted the picture of what God's attitude is like when his children bring their needs to him in, in prayer. Do you remember how Jesus said it? He said, which one of you, if your son comes to you asking for bread, would instead hand him a scorpion? No, Jesus said, your father, your father in heaven wants to give good things to his children. He's, he's eager to hear and to answer his children, meet needs. Well, that's what Elisha is showing us here. And then Elisha, not only does that, he asks the woman what she has. And what does, what does she have? She says that she has 
a jar of oil. The, the word jar there is the word that means like a, a small flask. So all she has is just a little flask of olive oil, which is another way of saying she has next to nothing. It's just emphasizing this woman is dirt poor. Okay, she, she really does have no provisions at all. So it's, it's just making the point, she does not have the means to meet this need, just to parallel it. It's very similar to Jesus standing there in front of the five crowd of 5,000 and saying to the disciples, what food do you have to give them? And what's their answer? We have five loaves of bread and two fishes. But both questions and answers are just clarifying that there are not enough provisions here to meet the need. Okay, all she has is just a little flask of oil. So what does Elisha tell her to do? Well, he tells her to go to her neighbors and to get empty jars, to get empty vessels and bring them to her house. And he, he tells her, he reminds her, don't just get a few. In other words, don't just get one or two. You get an abundance of jars. Carry those jars to your home. Get your sons. Go into your house and shut the door behind you. So this isn't, what's about to happen here is not a public miracle. It's, it's not being done for show. There is a private, personal need, and God is going to meet it in a private, personal way. Now, they would find out later, just like we get to read about it later, but the point of this miracle was not to draw a crowd. Okay, go into your house with your sons, close the door, you get your little flask of oil, and you start pouring it into the jars that you collect. That's the instructions. Okay, so here's what she does. Pick up in verse 5. So she went from him, shut the door behind her and her sons, who brought the vessels to her, and she poured it out. Now it came to pass when the vessels were full that she said to her son, bring me another vessel. And he said to her, there's not another vessel. So the oil ceased. And then she, she came and told the man of God, and he said, go sell the oil and pay your debt, and you and your sons live on the rest. So she does. In other words, exactly what Elisha told her to do. They collect vessels. She goes into her house. She closes the door. She gets her little flask of oil. Her first son hands her a pot, and she starts pouring from her little flask into this pot, and it keeps pouring, and it keeps pouring until the jar is full. So she passes that off and they hand her the next pot and she takes her little flask and pours and it keeps pouring and it keeps pouring until that one's full and then the next and then the next and then the next until every jar that they have in the house is filled with oil. Now let me just stop and say, I've heard, I've heard a lot of sermons that pause here and make a point of saying she should have had more faith. If she would have just collected more jars, she would have had even more oil. And so the problem with this story is this is a woman who didn't expect big enough things for God. She should have had more jars than she would have had more oil. But you'll notice in the passage, it never makes a point of that in this passage. Okay, there's, an, there's a limited number of vessels, right? It's not like there's an infinite number of jars in this little town she lives in. She goes to her neighbors. She collects all the jars that she can. They fill up all the jars that are there. And so just to emphasize, she's actually not being presented here as a failure in the story. So if you hear this story presented as if she should have just had more faith and more jars and she'd have got more money, that's, that's going beyond what the text says. This woman does what's right. She hears the word of God. She hears this command from a prophet. She believes what he says. She does what he says, and she's blessed for it. So she's being presented here in a positive light, not in a negative light. 
Well, now she's got all of these jars in her house that are filled with olive oil. And olive oil is, this is liquid gold at the time because everybody needs it, everybody uses it. It's easy to sell olive oil. So what's she going to do with it? Well, Elisha tells her what to do with it, doesn't he? He says at the end of the passage, Go and sell the oil and pay your debt, and you and your sons live on the rest. So she's going to sell the olive oil, and she's going to have enough money to do what? Not only to pay off her debt, but she's going to have enough money left over for her and her sons to live on. So not only is God meeting the need that she has, rescuing her sons, God is, to use uh, Ephesians 3 language, God is giving her exceedingly abundantly beyond what she could ask or imagine. God's giving her even beyond what she could have asked for in her prayer and is overabundantly meeting her needs. So the sons are rescued, miracle. The oil multiplies. Now, have you ever thought, why would God do it this way? If she has a financial need, why not just rain down gold coins from heaven to meet the need? Well, isn't this the way that you see God so often meeting his people's needs in the Bible? Most often, God does not choose to meet needs around his people or apart from his people, but he chooses to do it through his people. Even though what we have, like this story, is very small and very meager, the, the way Ralph Davis says it, is that most of the time when God is doing a work, he would rather his people be participants than spectators. That's a good way to say it. He could have met this woman's needs a million different ways, but instead he, he has her take the little bit of oil that she has and he multiplies that miraculously so that her needs are met. Okay, that's the first miracle, pretty straightforward. I'll read this quote from Ralph Davis and we'll look at the next one. He said, when Yahweh provides, rather, excuse me, whether amazingly or routinely, he frequently designs not merely to support your need, but to build your faith and spark your obedience in the process. He incorporates us in this because he's intending not just to meet a need, but to, to grow the faith of his people. Okay, so that's miracle number one. Here comes miracle number two. And this one's told with much more detail. Pick up in verse eight now. It says, now it happened one day that Elisha went to Shunem, where there was a notable woman, and she persuaded him to eat some food. And so it was that as often as he passed by, he would turn in there to eat some food. And she said to her husband, look now, I know that this is a holy man of God who passes by us regularly. Please let us make a small upper room on the wall, and let us put a bed for him there, and a table, and a chair, and a lampstand. And so it will be whenever he comes to us, he can turn in there. So we have another woman in a different situation than the first woman. First woman was poor. This woman is wealthy. First woman was a widow. This woman is married. In fact, when it says in the text that this woman is a notable woman, that means that not only is she wealthy, but that she has prominent standing in her community. Because this is a woman of financial means. This is a woman who her and her family have position in the community. And they live, we're told, in the village of Shunem. Um, Shunem is in, there's a, a valley, it's called the Jezreel Valley, that stretches from the coast right across the heart of Israel. And Shunem is one of the villages that is in the Jezreel Valley. And Elisha, who has a prophetic itinerant ministry traveling around Israel, Anytime he would come through this town, the city of Shunem, 
this lady would invite him in. Her and her husband would have him sit at their table and she would cook meals and she would provide food for Elisha and she's not doing it to try to get something out. This isn't manipulative. She's not asking for anything. She just knows that Elisha is a fellow servant of the Lord and she wants to minister to him and so she's doing that through the means of cooking meals for him. In fact, she wants to minister to him so much that she eventually talks her husband into building on a little added apartment on the house. So they add a room with a bed and a table and a lamp and a chair so that Elisha not only can stop there and get fed, but he can stop there and spend the night. He can go up to that room, he can rest, he can get a meal. So you, you get the picture that's being presented of this woman. She is, she is a wonderful picture of hospitality, isn't she? Well, what, is the, what is the virtue of hospitality? Well, that's where God calls us. I guess the simple general way to say it would be God calls us to be generous with what we have to minister to others. God calls us to open our homes and to open our tables and to open our kitchens as a means, as a means of blessing other people. That we use what God's given us. We don't treat our houses like museums. We treat our houses as ministry tools and we invite people in as a means of blessing others. And we do that. We welcome others in because God has welcomed us in. Right? It's what I say every time that we do the Lord's Supper. We were the ones outside and God invited us and he gave us a seat at the family table. That's what we're saying when we come to communion. God has given us a seat at the family table and he's invited us in. So we do that because God does that. You remember Psalm 23. How is God presented in the last half of Psalm 23? He's being presented in Psalm 23 not only as the great shepherd but as the great host. He prepares a table before us in the presence of our enemies. He spreads out a table and then he anoints our heads with oil. That's what you would do with guests when they came to your house. And he's not a stingy pourer. Our cups, the psalmist says, run over. So God is a great host and so God expects us to be hosts. One, one of the ways that we live with generosity and openness is that we show hospitality. That is an important Christian virtue. And that's a virtue that this lady has in spades. Okay, so she's prepared this room and she is taking care of the prophet Elisha. Let's see what happens next. Pick up in verse 11. And it happened one day that he came there and he turned into the upper room and lay down there. And then he said to Gehazi, his servant, call this Shunammite woman. When he had called her, she stood before him and he said to him, say now to her, look, You've been concerned for us with all this care. What can I do for you? Do you want me to speak on your behalf to the king or to the commander of the army? She answered, I dwell among my own people. So he said, what then is to be done for her? And Gehazi answered, actually, she has no son and her husband is old. Okay, so you, you get the picture. One day, Elisha is at her house enjoying her hospitality. He's up in this little apartment enjoying this woman's kindness, and he thinks, I, I should repay her kindness. I should do something for her in return. And I, I can just pause and say, you have to appreciate this about Elisha, because what it tells us is that Elisha didn't, even though he is the primary prophet at this time, Elisha does not act like these people owe this to him. He does not act like he deserves it. He does not act like everybody should be falling over themselves to help him, and everybody should be giving him gifts. I say that, you guys know I was raised in a preacher's house and I was raised around pastors and raised around evangelists, lots of good godly men. But I also saw a fair share of 
evangelists or pastors who would come through who um, acted and lived as if they were kind of a cut above everybody else and that everybody should fall over them in gratitude and give them gifts and expected all sorts of kindness. And that's not what you get here from Elisha at all. Okay, he wants to express gratitude. He wants to express thanksgiving to this woman for what she's done. And so he gets his servant. It's hard to make sense of exactly how the conversation goes, but it seems he's getting Gehazi initially to talk to her. And Gehazi's saying, hey, what can Elisha do to help you? I mean, Elisha has connections with everybody in Israel. So he can put in a good word with the king. Is there anything she needs? And what does she say? Basically, she doesn't need anything. I mean, what do you give somebody who has everything? She already lives where she wants to live. Her and her husband have plenty of money. But, Gehazi adds, there's one thing he's noticed that she doesn't have. What is it? She doesn't have a son. So her and her husband are, are childless. And right away, this, this sounds like a very common theme in the Bible, doesn't it? Because how many stories are there in the Bible of, of childless couples? Or, or of barren women? Even of very old barren women. Who's the prime example of that in the Bible? Sarah, right? Sarah is old, barren. Abraham is old, barren, way past childbearing years. And that theme keeps going. You have Rebecca and you have Rachel and you have uh, Hannah, the mother of Samuel, and you have Manoah, the mother of Samson. And then in the New Testament, you have Elizabeth, the, the mother of John the Baptist, where you get this consistent theme of of barren women who God blesses with children. Okay, and every one of those stories is a reminder to us that, that every conception is a work of God. Okay, in fact, the way it's often worded in the Bible is that God opened her womb so that she conceived. That's the way it's often worded in the Bible, that God opens wombs. Conception's a work of God. Okay, and that's what Elisha the, the light bulb has come on over his head when Gehazi says this. That's what Elisha now wants for this woman. So here's the conversation. Verse 15. So he said, call her. And when he had called her, she stood in the doorway. And then Elisha said, about this time next year you shall embrace the son. And she said, no, my Lord, man of God, do not lie to your maidservant. But the woman conceived and bore a son when the appointed time had come, of which Elisha had told her. So Elisha calls her in and says, this time next year, you're going to have a son. And what's her response? Basically, her response is, don't play with me. Don't, don't get my hopes up. Now, I, I, we can laugh at it, but if you've ever been through or know someone who's battled with infertility, you know it is an emotional roller coaster. So every month is trying and every month is hoping. And if there's a day late on the cycle, hopes soar and then come crashing down again. And you get the feeling that this is a woman whose hopes have been dashed over and over and over again. So it's easier for her not to even imagine the possibility than to let her hopes get up again. It's like her fragile heart can't take being let down again. So when Elisha brings it up, she says, no, no. She doesn't even want to let the thought in. But just like Elisha says, by that time the next year, she is holding a son in her arms. Okay, so there's a picture here, a reminder of the reliability of God's word. If God says it, our responsibility is trust it. Believe it and obey it. God does what he says 
wonderful story, end of chapter, right? Wrong. Keep reading. Verse 18. And the child grew. Now it happened one day that he went out to his father, to the reapers. And he said to his father, my head, my head. So he said to a servant, carry him to his mother. And when he had taken him and brought him to his mother, he sat on her knees till noon and then died. Now that's, that is a surprising twist to the story, isn't it? Because verse 17 ends with the, the laughter and the smiles of a maternity ward. You have a mom holding a new baby and everybody's happy. And then verse 20 ends with the wails of an anguished mom. And compared to the last story, last story you had a poor godly woman whose husband died. And now you have a rich godly woman whose child died. So, so does wealth and position insulate us from trouble in this life? Now, do you remember the way that Job said it? Um, man who is born of woman is of few, and by the way, man who's born of woman, that's all of us. Man who is born of woman is of few days and full of trouble. That, that's life in this fallen world, and there's nothing that you and I can do that will insulate us from it. So how does she respond to this? Verse 21. And she went up and laid him on the bed. By the way, I should say something about probably his age and how this happens. So the age of this boy would be he's old enough that his father takes him, can take him into the field. So this is not toddler age. But he's young enough so that when they take him back home, his mom can pick him up and put him on her lap. So I don't, I don't know what that would be. Maybe early elementary age. That's probably somewhere in that range. So he's going out to the field with his dad. While he's out there, his head starts hurting. The servants take him home. The mom picks him up, holds him in his lap, thinking he just needs a nap. He just needs a little rest and he'll recover. But he doesn't recover. He dies sitting in his mom's lap with this mom holding her only son in her arms. Okay, back to the text again. And she went up and laid him on the bed of the man of God, shut the door upon him, and went out. And then she called to her husband and said, Please, send me one of the young men and one of the donkeys, that I may run to the man of God and come back. And so he said, Why are you going to him today? It's neither the new moon nor the Sabbath. And she said, It is well. And then she saddled a donkey and said to her servant, Drive and go forward. Do not slacken the pace for me unless I tell you. And so she departed and went to the man of God at Mount Carmel. And so it was when the man of God saw her afar off that he said to his servant Gehazi, Look, the Shunammite woman, please run now to meet her and say to her, Is it well with you? Is it well with your husband? Is it well with the child? And she answered, It is well. So she takes her now dead son in her arms and she goes up to the apartment where Elisha had often stayed and she lays her son on Elisha's bed and then she goes downstairs and she asks her husband to get one of the servants to saddle a donkey and her husband's not sure what's happening so he says why why are you going to see Elisha it's not a Sabbath because what what happened during this day remember the religion in the northern kingdom of Israel is apostate so you can't go to the priest on the Sabbath day to hear anything about God and so what what they seem to have done is they would on the Sabbath if they could instead often go see the prophet and they would they would hear the prophet speak on the Sabbath and her husband is going why are you going to see Elisha it's not a Sabbath it's not a holy day which tells us 
that her husband apparently doesn't know that the son is dead. So she hasn't told him what's happened here. And so she gets a servant to saddle a donkey and to take off with her. And she says, don't slow down. Don't slow down for me. You go as fast as you can and you get to Elisha. And Elisha's at Mount Carmel. Now from Shunem to Mount Carmel is somewhere 15, 20 miles away. So we're not talking about this is just up the road. Okay, this is a long, hard, difficult ride to get out to Elisha. And Elisha sees them coming from a distance. And he knows there's a problem. So he gets his servant Gehazi to go out and meet him halfway and say, hey, what's, what's wrong? Is your son okay? Are you okay? Is your husband okay? And she just brushes him aside. She says it's well, and she just keeps trucking. She is trying to get to Elisha as fast as she can get to Elisha. And here's how the conversation goes when she gets there. Verse 27, now when she came to the man of God at the hill, she caught him by the feet, but Gehazi came near to push her away. But the man of God said, let her alone, for her soul is in deep distress, and the Lord has hidden it from me and has not told me. So she said, did I ask a son of my Lord? Did I not say, do not deceive me? Elisha figures, he knows now what's going on. And then he said to Gehazi, Get yourself ready and take my staff in your hand and be on your way. If you meet anyone, do not greet him. And if anyone greets you, do not answer him. But lay my staff on the face of the child. And the mother of the child said, As the Lord lives and as your soul lives, I will not leave you. So he, Elisha, arose and followed her. Now Gehazi went on ahead of them and laid the staff on the face of the child. But there's neither voice nor hearing. Therefore he went back to meet him and told him, saying, the child has not awakened. So when this woman blows past Gehazi and gets to Elisha, she breaks protocol in a major way. She falls on the ground and she wraps her arms around Elisha's feet. That's a major taboo because women did not touch men in this day. You didn't touch your husband in public, much less some man that's not your husband. So Gehazi is getting ready to step in and correct this when Elisha waves him off. He, he can see that there is deep anguish on this woman, and he doesn't know what it is. God hasn't revealed what's going on. And so this woman then begins to pour out her heart to Elisha. And th there's an element that feels like scolding in it, isn't there? Did, did I not tell you? She tells him, I didn't ask you for a son. And by this point, Elisha figures out what's going on. And I, and I should just stop and say, um, commentators are split on, on how they take this lady here. So some commentators read this and they say, this lady is being given as a picture of faith. Her son dies. She immediately goes to Elisha because she believes that Elisha can raise her son from the dead. So this is faith. And other commentators say, no, this isn't faith. This is, this is frustration and bitterness that she lays her son on Elisha's bed as a way of saying, this is your problem, Elisha. And she rides out, and she is, she is scolding Elisha here. I mean, you read her words here. Her words sound harsh and bitter and frustrated. So what is this? Is this frustration or is this faith? And I think the answer is yes, it's both. Yeah, it's frustration, and yes, it's anguish, and yes, it's confusion, and yes, it's all of that together, but there is also a thread of fate that is in all of this, right? It's a 15-mile ride. She's not just riding 15 miles to fuss at Elisha about this. She's confused by God, and at the same time, God is the only one that she can turn to. 
She doesn't understand what God's doing, yet at the same time, God is the one that she's going to keep going back to. And so when Elisha realizes what's going on, he says to Gehazi, take my staff and go back and lay my staff on the boy as if maybe the staff will work and God will raise the boy from the dead. And the woman says, as the Lord lives, I will not leave without you. What seems to be happening is Elisha is sending Gehazi, but Elisha is not planning on going back himself or planning on going later. And the lady goes, I'm not leaving here until you go with me. And so Elisha decides to go. So he starts heading back. Gehazi is on up ahead. Gehazi gets back, lays the staff on the boy, and the boy is he's clearly dead. Remember now, we've gone 15 to 20 miles each way. So by the time they get back, this boy's body, it's been at least a day. So there's no doubt about whether he's living or dead. His body's going to be ice cold at this point. And so now what is Elisha going to do in this situation? Pick up in verse 32. When Elisha came into the house, there was the child lying dead on his bed. He went in, therefore, shut the door behind the two of them, and prayed to the Lord. And he went up and lay on the child and put his mouth on his mouth, his eyes on his eyes, and his hands on his hands. And he stretched himself out on the child, and the flesh of the child became warm. He returned and walked back and forth in the house and again went up, stretched himself out on him. And then the child sneezed seven times and the child opened his eyes. And he called Gehazi and said, call this Shunammite woman. So he called her and when she came in to him, he said, pick up your son. So she went in, fell at his feet and bowed to the ground. And then she picked up her son and went out. So now... Elisha is there. We've got a dead boy who's been dead for a solid day at this point. What's Elisha going to do? Because one of the things that's clear here is Elisha, he didn't know this was happening. This has all caught Elisha by surprise, and he, he doesn't understand what's happened. Elisha doesn't know how to make sense of this. And I, I should say, so if we have the prophet Elisha, and Elisha the prophet had times in his life when he didn't understand what God was doing, I think that's pretty firm assurance that you and I are going to have many times in our lives where we don't understand what God's doing. Okay, there are going to be lots of times in life where you and I will not know what God's up to. And all we can do, think of the end of, of the book of Job, where all we can do like Job, do is, Job did is say, I'm just going to put my hand over my mouth. In other words, I'm going to be quiet and make sure I don't say anything stupid, no stupid accusations against God. I'm going to put my hand over my mouth and I'm going to trust God. Right? That's, that's all we can do in times like that. And you get a sense of desperation here with Elisha. He goes into the boy's room, he shuts the door, and with urgency, he begins to pray. He lays himself over this boy's body, which is what Elijah did in that other miracle story back in 1 Kings. He lays himself over this boy's body and prays that God would return life to this boy. And at some point in this prayer, apparently his, his heart starts beating because his body warms up. So the boy's heart is beating, but he still hasn't regained consciousness. So Elijah continues to pace, and he comes back and continues to pour his heart out and beg God for help. And finally, the boy awakens. We get this weird little snippet that he sneezes seven times. Um, the, the number seven in the Bible is the number of wholeness or completion, and probably the idea is it's just making the point that God completely, wholly restored his health. 
And so Elisha calls up his mom, and just think of this scene at the end. He calls up this mom who is distraught, and he presents to this mom her son now alive. And she falls down at Elisha's feet in gratitude, and then rushes over and scoops up her son in her arms. Now, just two miracles. What are these two miracles teaching us about God? Well, clearly they're teaching us about God's power. God has the power to multiply oil, and God has the power to raise the dead. But there's more going on here than a display of power, isn't there? Because if God wanted to display power, he could just split the earth in two or level a city. This isn't just a display of power. This is a display of not only God's power, but also of God's compassion. That God cares for the needy. That God pays attention to the nameless. Not not just that God has power, but that God is pleased to use that power on behalf of his suffering people. That God's both, both powerful and God is good. That's the two stories. Okay, but here's the question. So within the last, I don't know, eight to ten chapters of First and Second Kings, we have had two resurrection accounts. We've had two people raised from the dead in the last eight to ten chapters that we've been studying. Why doesn't God still do that? We've all had friends and family members who've died and God didn't raise them from the dead. Why? Well, for the same reason that that Jesus didn't empty the cemeteries when he was here. You know, Jesus is here for his whole ministry. How many people are we told Jesus raised from the dead during his entire ministry? Just three. We're only told of three people that he raised from the dead during his whole time here. Jesus didn't go around raising the dead and emptying cemeteries. Why not? Well, because it wasn't time for that. And I should add an important word. It wasn't time for that yet. But that time is coming, isn't it? God has appointed a time when he is going to raise his people from the dead. And what we get in the Bible in these little resurrection stories is we get these wonderful verifications that God does indeed have power over the grave. We get these little snippets to remind us that we do indeed serve a Savior who is more powerful than death. And of course, the ultimate demonstration of that was when Jesus rose from the dead and conquered the grave. So the Bible promises us there is a day of resurrection coming. We get snippets, these stories in the Bible that show us he has the power to raise the dead. And until that day comes, we live with trust in our Savior and with faith in our hearts. That's the, you know, so often in the last few weeks we've talked about that word hope in the Bible. It is confident assurance as we look toward the future based on the promises of God. Well, this is one of those things we have a steadfast hope in. There's coming a day of resurrection. The story's told about a Scottish pastor who lived back in the 1800s. His name was John Duncan. And uh, as often happened back then, his wife, giving birth to their second child, his wife died in childbirth. Okay, so she is a very young woman. John Duncan, this pastor, is now a very young widower. He's been left with children. And a friend told the story of, as they were getting ready for the funeral, 
John Duncan was going to see the body of his wife that had been prepared for burial. And so the, the crowds hadn't arrived yet. And he walked into this parlor where his wife's body was lying and his friend was by his side. And the friend told how the whole walk there, the whole time they were there, that he was absolutely silent. It was a quiet walk. He didn't say a word. He walked over to his wife's body, just overwhelmed by the situation as he looked down at the corpse of his young wife lying there. And um, it was like it took him a minute as he took it all in. And then the friend said that it's like he, he finally settled himself and he began to quote the words of the catechism that he had memorized as a child. It's the words of the Westminster Catechism. It's question number 37. It's, this is what he quoted looking at his wife. What benefits, this is the question, what benefits do believers receive from Christ at death? Answer, the souls of believers are at their death made perfect in holiness and do immediately pass into glory. And their bodies being still united to Christ do rest in their graves till the resurrection. It was like he stood there reminding himself of the hope that we have as Christians. Listen, reminding himself of the hope we have as Christians even as we stare into the jaws of death. It's like the song we sang last week. You remember, what is our hope in life and death? How's the song say? What is our hope in, Christ, in life and death? Christ alone. That's our hope in life and death. All right, let's pray. We'll dismiss.